welcome to Directly Correct, a people analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Al Adamson. Well, we all sound good. Okay, yeah. we got there. Um, last yeah. question, uh, how long do we go? Um, should we try, try and do one stream um, until the top of the hour or what's, what's the ideal length, I guess is the question. Yeah, we've, we've been, been running about 45 minutes usually. Okay. That's typical. Okay. Got it. All right. Well, um, All right. welcome to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole Knapper and Scott Hines. Scott, we have an esteemed guest today. Care to tell us about him? Well, I already feel like I'm disadvantaged because you two have already had a podcast together. You're already familiar with each other, but we have Al Admonson uh, of uh, People Analytics Future of Work Conference uh, and other great things. But before we start, uh, I just got to say, like, the outpouring support from everybody uh, via LinkedIn and all the other uh, channels has been just overwhelming. Uh, I, I really wanted to start this podcast to reconnect with the IO community, and I had this long list of folks that I wanted to connect with. And this podcast has uh, just been fantastic at uh, achieving that goal. I, I know, Cole, you also have a ton of folks on your list as well. Oh my gosh, like it, the outpouring of support has just been great. And so I'm just grateful to the community that, you know, more than five people are listening to us and uh, <laughs> that, that's been really exciting. But I, I do want to turn it back to Al. Um, Al, you I mean, you're, you're what, what I would consider to be pretty famous in our community. But for those of you who, who don't know the esteemed Al Adamson, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh. Well, first off, thank you for having me. Uh, and the popularity of your podcast is deserved. And it's a function of the contributions that both of you have made to the discipline over years. Uh, you're not only well-respected, you're well-liked. And I enjoy listening to you, learning with you. Um, so congratulations on your success. And I look forward to listening and learning more. Um, I will say this as I share a little bit about myself, that it is about the conversations, about the learning that we have as a community. Uh, when I started in this field nearly 20 years ago, uh, I was a hack, and I say that compassionately. Um, I created the, the quote-unquote people analytics capability at Gap Inc. in the early 2000s, and given my economics background and consulting background, I was uh, rooted in the balance scorecard framework, uh, performance measurement and management, and I kept going what I call upstream to understand the drivers of organizational performance. And for those who aren't familiar with the balance scorecard, it looks at organizational performance from four lenses, a financial lens, an internal operational lens, a customer market lens, and what Norton and Kaplan call a learning and growth lens. And I was always curious about that last one because it frankly didn't make as much sense to me as it needed to. So I rebranded that leaders, managers of the workforce, and who the heck are they? They're the customers of HR and talent processes, and who sets the agenda for that leadership does. And so I had now this causal framework, which uh, was my kind of the way I approached my consulting projects back then, and that led me into Gap, and given that they're a retailer, it was 
a great learning platform to do what we're now calling people analytics. At the time, it was human capital analytics. I wasn't making many friends with that naming convention, so we rebranded <laughs> we ourselves uh, Employee Insights and uh, had some successes, had some challenges, uh, but I just learned, and I'm just a, I'm, I'm a learner by nature, and uh, through relationships, through the Corporate Leadership Council uh, at the time, CEB, uh, peers is how I learned. And so I've, over the past nearly 20 years since, I've been eager to connect with those who are not only quote unquote peers, but those who are bringing innovation to the space and understanding the employee experience and doing right by the workers, those who are at, you know actually generating the data. So it's not all about organizational performance and you know financial outcomes that it's truly around humanizing the work experience so that's a little bit about me obviously there's some more intricacies there but you know i feel very blessed to be where i'm at at this point in my life and in my professional career and uh look forward to the conversation oh i mean like you're i looked over your bio and it's just like super impressive you start out and you covered some of this already like you start out uh in org development uh, working your way up to senior consultant uh vp ceo now you're founding these people analytics organizations how'd, how'd you get your start <laughs> um i'm a creator i mentioned i'm a learner but i'm also a creator uh so if there is a gap out there, then I am interested in filling it myself or advising others to go and get that done. And, you know, that's kind of the nature of this notion of future of work is that, yeah. you know, uh, what is the purpose of people analytics to focus on this, this uh, topic for a second? It's like, I, I want it to achieve a certain outcome. It's not all about itself. You look at people analytics, it's a process, a process to generate insight and insight for the sake of of what? So to answer your question pointedly, how did I get my start? Uh, I was a management consultant with Ernst & Young, and I was uh, doing performance benchmarking in the energy industry. So I spent a lot of time in Houston at the time. And even though I was based in San Francisco, uh, that job took me over to Russia and what was commonly referred to as the Commonwealth of Independent States at the time. Um, so I consulted in the energy industry there. I ended up jumping off and uh, founding my own water delivery business, uh, Clearwater Chista Vada, and uh, did so in Kiev, Ukraine uh, as well. So I go back to that juncture of my career uh, because I did take my consulting chops, if you will, on mm -hmm. staying in curiosity, identifying need, uh, you know, current state, future state, you know, gap analyses, roadmap to achieve things. And, and that kind of has anchored my thinking and then applied that into an entrepreneurial endeavor in creating this company. And data was just embedded in my way of doing things. So one of the things that's really unique about a five gallon water delivery business that many are probably not conscious of, we are one of the only industries where you're going into people's homes and going into people's business on an ongoing recurring basis. So particularly at that time in, in Russia and Ukraine, we had to hire really smart because if we had some 
Yahoo going into someone's home that was not representing <laughs> our brand well, you know, and that's a function of safety. That's a function of trust. I mean, we had the best product in the market, uh, given the technology that we brought to, to bear to purify the water. Um, we were increasing service levels because we were uh, one of the first to get to route density, which enabled us to deliver in shorter and shorter time windows. So, you know, all this was fantastic, but our hiring practices were absolutely critical to making sure that we retained that competitive advantage. So the way we selected talent, we recruited talent, the way we onboarded, the way we trained, the way we communicated, coached them up was critically important. Unbeknownst to me at the time, I was doing quote unquote people analytics. I was formulating yeah. talent strategies based on the data. And I was always curious around the data that we were lacking and going actually creating what I call appropriate data. And to this day, I people, oh, data, we don't do big data, all this, you know, passive <laughs> data, great, great, great. But do we have the appropriate data to answer the questions we want or need to know? So probably more long-winded than you wanted, but that's how I got my start in this discipline. So when I came no, back no. to uh, yeah, in, in that, early 2000, that's why I, you know, I anchored my consulting on this notion. That that's absolutely perfect, and I I think this is a common story for a lot of people analytics professionals. It's a lot of curiosity, a lot of data, and of course, uh, selection is the lifeblood of the organization. I, I myself started out as a counseling major, and it took like three weeks before I was like, no, I don't want to listen to people's problems all day. And I finally met someone in the I/O department. And they said like, hey, come over here, like you're interested in data, you love numbers and uh, essentially building assessments, et cetera. Come on over. It's like, oh, it's a perfect fit. Uh, that That's usually how I got my started. But like, as the legend of Cole grows, I don't know how Cole started. <laughs> oh my gosh. We're, I don't even know if we have time to go into that. The, th the <laughs> thing um, <clears throat> I would say, Al, is it sounds like you just have a really extensive backstory to being a spy. <laughs> I was like, man, that you really leaned into that backstory about human capital analytics when really the spying stuff is is working out really well for you. So good stuff, man. Check but, that um, passport. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. No comment. <laughs> exactly. That's that's exactly what a spy would say. But I but I digress. Well, maybe maybe we fast forward to the present here, Al. Um, and talk a little bit about people analytics in the future work or PFAL as it's called, and, and even some of the meetups that you've been sponsoring. I, I think I, I kind of have just two questions for you. One is, can you talk about when you say the future of work, what do you mean and what are you striving for? And then on the, the meetup side, like what, what's, what's the idea there? Um, because you came and sponsored the one in Dallas, and I was super grateful for that. We had a really great time. But I see you've been doing this kind of all over the country. What What's the plan there, and, and how is that contributing to the community? <laughs> uh, there's a false underlying assumption there that I have a plan. <laughs> no, it's um, So I was going to do uh, – FAO 2022 here in the San Francisco Bay Area in February of this year. Uh, given the Omicron variant, the Delta variant, I forget which one, um, I have said the risk was too high. And frankly, in hindsight, I'm glad I did not incur that risk. 
Um, so now I am close to making a commitment on Fafal 2023. It's likely so to be, uh, you know, stay tuned for that. Yay! Um, <laughs> but in the uh, interim, it's like, how do we engage the community in meaningful ways? And I emphasize meaningful ways because it's one thing to, you know, have a get together. It's another thing to, you know, come together with a, a purpose. And frankly, this has been an experiment, if you will, on what that purpose, you know, is. Because I received some perspective uh, that, Al, I, I just don't want to go to a meetup. You know, I'm director level, I'm right, VP. Right. I, I don't want to just go and talk with people. Um, that's intimidating. In fact, I'm an introvert. You know, I'm like, I'm a researcher. I like, so that was really great perspective. And so, you know, what I really would like is for you to do your show live. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. So the idea that I go and do interviews um, came to the front. And so this last one I did in New York, I did four interviews. I interviewed Stella Lupashore and, and um, among others, you know, Drop was a sponsor, Worklytics was a sponsor, One Model was a sponsor. And so we did kind of little TED Talks, mini fireside chats, and that seemed to work really well. And you know, unsurprising, because we had this content, uh, we had a great turnout and people had things to talk about. So the idea is that we have a theme or set of themes. We attract people who are interested in those themes, bring them together. They get to meet new people. They get to reconnect. Of course, people who are younger, early in their career or in career transition come network. They can find jobs. And of course, if you're looking to hire in the space, uh, you know, there's an opportunity for you to you know, connect with talent uh, that are up and coming. Um, in fact, in New York, I found out and I, I don't have permission to share this publicly, but a job offer was actually made during the event. And I found out about that at the end. And I was like, that's amazing. Oh yeah. my gosh, you know, for, for that to, to happen. And you go back to Pafal, the conference, you know, their deals are being made, contracts are being signed, you know, at the event. And I'm like, gosh, I had no idea, you know, this would occur when I first started because Pafal was rooted out of a peer group facilitation and the peer group getting to a size of 30 or 40 where, hey, we want to learn more about the vendors and the innovative practices that are happening. And now it's like we have this mini conference and now, hey, why don't we invite people from the public who are not part of this peer group? And, you know, now 40, 50 people became 80, 100 people, which became two, three, 400 people. So that was effectively the evolution of Pafal. So to answer your question around future of work concisely, I had an organization, well, still a consulting firm called Talent Strategy Institute. And I consciously chose not to name it people analytics or workforce planning, because that is too limiting. I have always asked myself for the sake of what? People analytics for the sake of what? And future of work is something that I've always been intrigued about. And mm -hmm. I have been kind of bent sideways around all these devices and flying cars and robots and, and, and so forth, because there's growth in equity in the future of work as I see it. And much of that inequity has come to light. And I've long said that we not only have an opportunity to study what's happening, 
with the employee experience. We have a responsibility to do so, and we have a responsibility to act appropriately. And we have to do that this at speed, at scale, and in sustainable ways. And for me, that's the future of work. I want to talk about the future of work that uh, the future that organizations want to create. I want to talk about the future of teams. I want to talk about the future that individuals want for themselves. And I want to create alignment and data can serve as a basis for that alignment as well. So our profession is right at the crux of that. And so I think we're on a two or three on a 10 point scale of where we could be and where we will be over the next you know, eight to 10 years. I want to accelerate, accelerate, accelerate <laughs> our progression down there. Um, so we can you know, add value to not only you know, organizations, but you know, to people's lives. Well, quick, quick follow up there, Al. And first of all, congratulations on your job offer. We, we look forward to you telling us where you've accepted to go work. <laughs> I, I know that no, it, was, it was somebody else I know, but um, it, it, on a serious note though, like in terms of the future of work, you know, Scott and I've talked a few times on the podcast about this, about like who determines the future of work? Like, is it executives or is it kind of the median employee? And what happens when those group of people come into conflict about, their beliefs about the future of work and how, how have you seen that kind of playing out itself and, and navigating that in your own, you know, consulting business or with Bafau or anything like that? Yeah. So I'll just jump into a topic that's not only top of mind, but it's a top of priority for most organizations. And if it's not, that's a problem. And that's one of inclusion. So yes, do we want healthy cultures? Um, what does a healthy culture look like? Uh, healthy cultures, both at a micro level, team level, and a macro level, are, are in my view largely consciously created. So let me give you an example, uh, and I'm going to toggle a little bit away from inclusion, but I'm going to come back to it. The idea that we have people doing work and that they have infinite capacity is erroneous and in my view it's unethical and to put a finer point on it is historically we've said well we have all this work to do if i am a leader or manager it's like hey just go figure it out and so you go down push that down a hierarchy at the end of the day you have a manager say we've got all this work to do we don't have any more budget for headcount just figure it out just prioritize just go figure it out and what do people do you know they want to be high performers they want to contribute they want to do their best work so now they're you know, prioritizing their health or deprioritizing their health relationships and they're sucking it up and right, trying to right. do their best. And that is not healthy. You know, and back of me here is uh, Jeffrey Pfeffer's book, Dying for a Paycheck. Um, over here also is Rob Cross, Beyond Collaborative Overload. And it's a, or collaboration overload. So we are being hit as workers by each and every angle and at the end of the day, we're all constrained by time. So we as analytics professionals can shed light on the delta between what's actually being done and the capacity of individuals, not to mention their skills and, and so forth. So in an ideal future state, I would love to see better workforce planning driven by better insight into the nature of the work and the capacity of the workforce. And so this is where I'll wrap it up back to inclusion. The propensity of 
women, there's a bunch of data out there to leave the workforce is much, much higher than men. And because in my view, <laughs> their capacity to deal with bullshit is <laughs> a lot lower. You know, kudos to 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 women and just period, stop. It's just it's just the case where if I want a diverse workforce from a gender perspective, I'm gonna have to accommodate realities that are diverse and not only amongst women, but different peoples of different background who might not have the same level of resources. And I'm talking about uh, you know, women of color. I'm talking about those of you know, different economic backgrounds who might not have the the financial uh, safety net of family that others um, do. So you know, all these intricacies, you know, if you want to deal with them, it's a systematic challenge that includes facilities, HR, finance, and we do not have the governance structures in place, at least in most organizations, to make conscious decisions, again, at speed, at scale, and in sustainable ways. And that's part of my mission when we talk about future of work is to advance the means in which we're consuming the insight so we can make appropriate decisions ongoing and continually improve. I mean, I mean, they, we're seeing the same sort of phenomenon with uh, Gen Z workers where they're more likely to leave the workforce as well, like not put up that bullshit. Uh, and they're, they're starting, I, I, I guess I'll go back to like the question of what is the future of work? Like if you go to the past of work, our grandparents sat there for 60 years, got a gold watch at the end of the day, stayed with the same company, et cetera. Yeah. And now we're seeing more of this sort of uh, uh, the, the bullshit meter. People are reaching it and leaving the workforce, whether that means they go to like a gig economy like Uber or, uh, you know, start their own business uh, or like, you know, like in, in a different vein, like Dante said, the road scene is not worth traveling. What's beyond the hill? Is it like we're all sitting in like VR headsets in our underwear and bed, like trying to mimic an office environment? What what does this look like? Well, uh, it depends on the industry. Uh, it depends on the individual's priorities. So the future of work is going to be constantly designed at different levels because even down a team. So the idea that, yeah, again, the future is going to be, you know, this tech space with design thinking and boards all over, you know, I, I do my part to uproot from that thinking. The future of work ideally is going to be appropriate for the industry, the business, and the, the people that are in your organization at that point in time. In other words, the future of work is always going to be dynamic. It's not going to be static. We're not going to be like, oh, we're there, high five, you know, job done. Right, That's right. Not um, a few years ago, and I, I every time I do this, I want to slap my wrist. Uh, I wrote an article called HR's Role in Managing the Amoeba. And the amoeba for me is the future of work. So if you look at an organization and they have its mission and there's they have to do work to get things done for a customer and they get money for that value exchange. So the means in which work was done historically was primarily by employees, by people you hired to do a job. Now you look at it in a broad scale over time, let's just pick the last 50 years or since um, World War II, we have this movement away from full-time employees as being the core delivery mechanism of, the, of this work, mm -hmm. uh, the doers in other words, but now we have contractors, 
consultants, outsource providers, robotic automation, AI disruptions, you know, digital transformation, all these things that are doing work on behalf of the organization. These things, again, are not static. You know, in some cases, based on growth of a product or the growth of a particular industry, you're going to want to hire more employees. In some cases, you're going to want to stay at a certain uh, employee level and hire more outsourced providers or partners um, in large organizations. They could be the likes of, you know, Accenture or Deloitte or someone like that. But you get the idea is that the means in which work is done is way different than it was 40, 50 years ago. So if we flip that and project forward, the means in which work is gonna get done is gonna continually evolve. And obviously a lot of it's gonna be with AI and robotic automation and with globalization, that's gonna continue. Look at the likes of Upwork and the gig economy and the ability to get work done you know, on an as need basis, which elevates agility and you know, responsiveness and things like that. So right. you know, I'm really, interested in the ecosystem of work. Unfortunately, most organizations don't have the processes, aka governance, to look at work systematically. So what I'm talking a lot about now is what I'm calling continuous work transformation. So how, again, do organizations look at this ecosystem of work and respond appropriately given the different constraints that appear, different opportunities that appear? Yeah, that, uh, that that makes sense. Uh, and we, we, as we automate more processes and this sort of thing, we're seeing the workforce go to more like a uh, service sort of model. And I, I think one thing that we lose as IOs is like the value of work, the, the personal value of work, the meaning that people get out of just going to the office or, you know, collaborating with other individuals, et cetera. So we don't all wind up like those people in WALL-E in their little chairs, like floating around the spaceship, et cetera. I don't yeah, know if I, I've seen uh, that movie, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I know the reference. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I'm not going to remember Awa's last name offhand, um, and hopefully she won't slap me on the wrist for mentioning her name, but she works at Google. And I also was at the table with Susan Biancani, uh, who was formerly at Airbnb, who's now at Netflix, leading people analytics. And we were talking slash discussing slash arguing slash exploring uh, the relationship between well-being and performance. And I have long looked at it like many Neanderthals um, and more compassionately, like probably many male executives where it's a binary trade-off in other words right, if we right. can have you know the foosball and good food and you know all, all this <laughs> yeah. stuff then it's going to compromise performance and if we're performing then it's going to compromise people's well-being and i know that it's not a straight binary so i, I don't need that that coaching but i do uh have long thought it would be more binary than it actually is, arguably. And I'm really interested in studying this, studying this more. In other words, going back to your question and idea, is that people will feel good about contributing in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. And as IOs, I don't have to tell you the, you know, the, the value and, and, and truth in that. Uh, that being said, there are limits. 
right? We, we need to take care of ourselves physically, relationships-wise, you know, emotionally. So what does that dynamic, you know, look like moving forward? And Scott, you mentioned this, particularly with uh, younger generation, you know, their capacity, much like I shared with women, to move is much, much higher than people like me. And I grew up in what I call the suck it up generation. You're lucky <laughs> to have a job. This is the way it is. Just, you know, bite your tongue, yeah, bite your lip and do your work. You know, and now, particularly for high value talent, you know, they got options. So I'm really interested in how, as we evolve over time, people's contribution, which is the preferred language that I like over over performance, is how is that going to contribute to people's well-being? And what is the point of diminishing returns on that? In other words, where is contribution too much and it compromises well-being? So anyway, I'll stop there. Well, and, and I like that you frame it as contribution because contribution kind of has a, a, a connotation to meaningfulness implicit within that statement versus performance can be kind of meaning agnostic. Um, but I, I want to come back to one thing that you mentioned earlier that was really intriguing, Al, which is this concept of continuous workforce transformation. And I, I would like to rewind the clock a little bit because I see a lot of talk along these lines post-pandemic or during the pandemic about kind of the necessity of the workforce transforming. Do you have any war stories or, or success stories pre-pandemic with this concept of continuous workforce transformation? Or was this something that just really came to light because of the pandemic? Uh, so two things. Um, so, so the term I use is continuous work transformation. So just- Oh, sorry. I'm sorry if I misremembered. No. No, no, no. It, it's totally fine because I, you know, continuous workforce transformation is, in my view, a subcomponent of that. Okay. So, so, uh, so let me explain and answer your question around war, war stories, and because sure. I'll go to one of my favorites, which I think a lot of people can um, resonate with. When I first, um, well, when I left. 2008, 2009, um, I am consulting and I am referred into Walt Disney Animation Studios. Now, this is right after Disney purchased Pixar. And what happened was Pixar's leadership came over to Walt Disney Animation Studios and took over the, the operation. Um, to make this concise, and but it's just... Uh, you know, one of the more kind of satisfying projects I've ever had in, in my career. Anne LeCam was the head of HR at the time. She eventually became head of production as well. So imagine head of operations and head of HR being <laughs> one and the same person. And it's, you know, at the time, a 12, 1300 person organization. Um, when I joined, uh, Wreck-It Ralph was just coming out of production. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Frozen was going into production and Big Hero 6 was right on the heels of that. So the essence was this, is that formerly artists, the people who were, make the films, were on a project. They were on a certain film and once their contribution to that project was done, they were out on the street. So with this new model, what they made the decision to do is, no, that's not going to be the way we're going to do things moving forward. Now you're going to be an employee of the studio. So we're going to actually find you a project to do within the studio. Also, they used to 
release one feature film roughly every 24 months. Now they're going to release one feature film every 12 months and not increase headcount. So think about the talent implications there. You know, you have to enable internal movement. You have to, you know, hire intelligently when people, you know, leave and you have to have a pipeline. Uh, So what was happening is they needed to do workforce planning. And I should also add before I go into workforce planning is they, animation is one of the most fascinating industries ever because they're making the software by which they're making the films in real time so it's just it's it's mind-blowing and they're like oh we could do this one day and we you know we can't do this one day and we can do it the the next and that changes you know what they do it often changes the language and obviously the visuals so it's just fascinating so anyway they have screenings so a screening passes, then people can roll off and go on to the next project. The screening doesn't pass, so to speak. They got to rework some of it, and that talent has to stay on. So you can imagine at scale over time that, oh, guy, we think this person's going to roll off. We don't know if they're going to roll off. And now, okay, they're available. And we already have somebody there. Or, hey, we thought they're going to roll off. So we got to, you know, hire contingent labor and, you know, bring them in. So go back to workforce planning. What Every time we wanted to have a workforce planning meeting, all the uh, producers, all they want to talk about was, hey, I need somebody next week. I need somebody right now. I, I don't have time to talk about the strategic stuff. So we changed the language. So it's like, okay, we're going to have this meeting be this. And effectively, for purposes here, it was called strategic casting, but it was called effectively talent deployment, making sure that things were taken care of in the here and now. Then we redefined workforce planning and say, okay, we have four purposes primarily for this workforce planning meeting, which happened you know, once every other month, if I recall correctly. And it was around informing talent acquisition strategy, it was informing internal movement, it was informing org design, and it was forming uh, use of contingent labor. So, and the horizon was really about 12 months, maybe 18 months. We also had yet another meeting called workforce visioning. So we're looking three to five years out for disruptions, and that would happen less frequently. Again, um, uh, once um, every six months, although I think that might have went to once uh, a year. You just um, need to I, be directionally correct here. That's that's all we that's all we. Thank you very here. much. Yeah. Thank you very much. So again, <laughs> if Scott doesn't find me, a way to include yeah. that in every episode, it's a failure. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I apologize for being overly long-winded on this, uh, but the key reason I went to that particular story is this: uh, is that we focus on the language that we were using so we clearly define the purposes of you know what workforce planning is what workforce visioning is what talent deployment is and we also made sure that there were clear owners of these processes and 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 outcomes of the meeting and the data that informed these they were all 
distinct, but they interrelated. So there was a narrative that was cohesive that inspired confidence, you know, over time. So it was a very conscious decision on how they were creating culture, how they were enabling not only the projects, the movies to get done well, uh, but it was also making sure that they were taking care of the workers. And the last thing I'll say, and I keep forgetting the naming convention, but they effectively had internal um, talent advisors to help individuals and help project managers and producers get the talent. So these were like, I think there were eight of them um, at, at one time roaming around the organization, just having discussions on people's okay. intentions, the artist's intentions, you know, and so they could help inform if they were going to be around what they believed when they were going to roll off a project you know what project they wanted to be on so i uh was you know the outcomes of that period i take zero credit for but it was a beautiful thing to see the efficiency and effectiveness in those three films and obviously the one in the middle there was phenomenal so i'll stop you know, there. Just... you know part of what i really love about people in Linux and io work is like you sometimes get to build the plane while you're flying it all right it sounds like this is exactly what happened in this situation and uh kind of like trying to do a little segue here uh cole and i are trying to build this directionally correct podcast while we're <laughs> flying it and i i think that good, a, good like, one e scott good yeah one. thank you very much uh <laughs> well done uh, I'm a professional, obviously. Uh, a, I think we're getting better every week. I, I, the biggest learnings have happened in the past couple of weeks. You know, you are a second guest. We're much, I think this is going a lot smoother than it did last week, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll get better in the future as well. Uh, but you are a true pro. Any tips, like any war stories there? Like, how can we improve? What to look out for? Pitfalls, etc. Well, you two are doing it in inherently, and I will answer it in this way. Uh, it's my view that after the basics, we as human beings want three things: we want to be seen, we want to be heard, and we want to be empowered. In other words, we don't want to be invisible. We don't want to be ignored. And oftentimes we don't want to be told what to do. We want to be enabled to get where we want to go. We want to create ideas that we own so we can feel good about our contributions to the world. So even in our brief time together, you have allowed me space to express myself and my ideas and my experiences. And so I try and do the same thing. Uh, I try and create space to for people to share their accomplishments, to share their ideas. And you know, that requires me to be not only an active listener, but a compassionate listener. I look for what's right. I don't look for what's wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two like, constructive criticism. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm too scarred. Um, you know, I don't, we can talk about performance management and feedback. I wrote an article called feedback is garbage. I wrote another article called performance management is stupid. You know, I'm really attentive to language and I'm really attentive to reality. You know, if people come up to me and say, Hey, may I give you some feedback? I'm like, no. <laughs> like, what the no, hell? This guy's <laughs> um, 
What I do say is uh, what I'm really interested is in your perspectives and ideas. You know, I'm really interested in how I made you feel. And, you know, if you have ideas on how to improve, I'm really interested in that. But I sure as hell ain't interested in you criticizing me with imperfect information. Yeah, because I'm making right. decisions that you don't have aware awareness of. So you probably didn't expect me to go there with your um your question around being a professional podcaster, interviewer, facilitator, all that. But it's really about being fully present, asking great questions, and to echo Jim Collins, um, manage the energy in the room. And that requires right, the first right. two, you know, to be fully present and ask great questions. I, I've already yeah. noticed in, in this, this short little trip that Cole is a much better listener than I am in this podcast. Like he asks great questions, et cetera. Maybe I'm a hard grader myself, but like I, I, I go back and re-listen and I, I just like, oh, wow, Cole is fantastic at just like hearing at the essence of what people are saying and then reiterating it back to them. Well, and I'm also a much better interrupter as well, um, <laughs> but uh I'm working on it. Uh, one one piece of feedback that we've gotten, and it really aligns, I think, to what you just said, Al, was, you know, pe- uh, some some people who I really trust have said, you know, Cole, we're really interested in not just learning what you guys are against. We're interested in learning what you guys are for. And I really, really like that. And And so that's one of the things that I hope that we can kind of really kind of share where our hearts are at in that regard as we go forward and get into with our guests. But I really love your response there, Al, just like, <laughs> you know, being authentic, but also, you know, saying, hey, um, you know, this is kind of what I'm, I'm about, but you may not know my context and and, and, and maybe we're all going to get to learn some of that context together. Um, right. With that said, I, I'm, I'm super curious. You mentioned the Talent Strategy Institute earlier, and you mentioned specifically that you didn't include any w- words like people analytics or the future of work within that, I think there's a lot of people in our audience, but I would even put myself in this camp of an individual who's really curious about what it's like to strike it out on their own, right? Uh, To start something like Pafal. Yeah, or to start something like your own consulting firm. It, It does sound terrifying, especially when you have a steady paycheck or anything along those lines. So can you can you share some wisdom in that regard or can you you know say hey don't don't follow in my footsteps if that's like a bad idea or <laughs> I don't know what what what's your perspective on that Get a good lawyer and get a good accountant <laughs> There be dragons and, out there right and get uh, a good advisory board whether it be formal or informal uh, in other words, don't do it alone, uh, because if you want to go out and be the hero consultant, and it it is more complex, you want to do the work that you're good at. And if you're chasing down invoices, if you're wrestling with contracts, if you're doing stuff that's not aligned with your mission, then you're going to be miserable. (laughs) And I learned that the hard way. Um, And I've still 
I still make some mistakes. I'll, you know, I'll admit it. And, you know, understanding going back to this notion of capacity that we talked about earlier, that applies to you as an individual consultant. It applies to you as a worker, you know, knowing your boundaries, knowing when to say no is really, really important. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't mean that, you know, jokingly, I mean that seriously, is that you need a crew and the crew is not only your friends, it's professionals who yeah. can help those boundaries and help enable you to get where you want to go. So, uh, of course there are some, uh, you know, automated tools that, you know, can help, you know, with this legally and otherwise, but, uh, I have to say, you know, like many who might be listening, oh, I don't need a lawyer. I don't need, I don't need a you know, good accountant. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, you know, yeah, take no. care of that at the outset because you don't want to be downstream having to clean stuff up. Um, and that, that is, is a bookkeeper as well. That is so not the the, the direction I thought you were going to go, but I, I love hearing that because one, one thing I didn't hear you say, and I think a lot of people start here is just, how do I build a book of business, right? You yeah. you didn't even mention that once. And and so I, I just love that you I mean, you you gave the really serious answer, which I, I love. I am curious. So like how how does someone build a book of business? You reach out and then you reach out again. And then when you think you're done reaching out, you reach out again. And then <laughs> when you're when, when you're frustrated, you reach out again. Um, my whole career, the reason we're talking today is because I did just that. So when I was consulting back in 2000, or I'm sorry, this is probably 2001 or two, um, I was uh, put in touch with Eric Severson, who is the chief of staff of Eva Sage Gavin at Gap Inc. And we had exchanged a couple of emails. Um, I had called him, left him a voicemail. We had had a good conversation. Said, oh, call me back. We'll get this going. I called him back. Nothing. Called him back again. Nothing. I mean, I must have left, <laughs> left him four or five voicemails. And each time when I was at the end, I was like, this is the last one. And I'm like, no, you know what? That's ego stuff. I'm just going to do one more because he said call back. And so I called and he picked up and he go, oh, Al, I'm so sorry, man. Hey, no, we need to get you in. And I was there the next week and then I had a project and the rest is history. If I didn't make that last call, I wouldn't be here. That's, that's you know, a, that, that, that tenacity and the uh, ability to leverage your network are two things that we haven't really covered that much in this podcast, but uh, we definitely should. We can do an entire episode on both of these. Uh, but Ali, we're, we're essentially reaching time. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming and talking to us. Super interesting, covered a lot of ground. Uh, Cole, any other uh, party thoughts? Yeah, just next time I get frustrated, Al, I'm going to reach out to you, man. Uh, that's that's the <laughs> takeaway I got from this podcast. Al has job offers. That's what we learned. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't, no, if you know, send them, your way, send them my way, please. Please, if you two are hiring, let me know. Uh, no, hey, well, hey Al, no. Al, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hey, no, congratulations on what you two are doing. Keep it up. And I'm a huge fan. And, no, and thank you for having me. Appreciate you both. Hey, thanks so we'll, much. we'll definitely get you back on in the future, Al. Um, but as we as we close up, the this has been Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Thanks again to our guests, Al Adamson, and, and you know, best wishes to everyone.
Adios. There we go. You want to